From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Annalisa Santella, Senior Editor for Music Reference at OUP, and your host for this episode. In this month's episode, we recorded a roundtable discussion about Rihanna, and more specifically, Adana K. Jones's article in the Oxford Handbook of Screen Dance Studies called Can Rihanna Have Her Cake and Eat It Too? A Schizophrenic Search for Resistance Within the Screen Spectacles of a Wine and Fatale. Let's jump into it. Today we're going to be talking about Barbadian singer and superstar Robin Rihanna Fenty, better known as just Rihanna. Adana Jones uh, is our first guest. She is a recent PhD from Critical Dance Studies Program at the University of California, Riverside, and is currently a lecturer in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies and the Division of Dance at Stanford University. She is the author of an article from the Oxford Handbook of Screen Dance Studies entitled, Can Rihanna Have Her Cake Need It Too? A Schizophrenic Search for Resistance Within the Screen Despectables of a Wine and Fatale. Welcome, Adana. Hi, I'm glad to be here. So your article uh, focuses on a particular performance of a song by Rihanna called Birthday Cake. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what interested you in this performance? Uh, Rihanna, up until this point, didn't really dance. She kind of just stood there or like moved sensually. So at this point, um, she had started doing um, dance choreography. So to see her actually do choreography, kind of was like, okay, Adana, you need to pay attention because, you know, you're a dance scholar. So this is, this is something that you should pay attention to. But um, also the movement itself was very reminiscent of Caribbean movement. It was hip-centered, and I could see that there was a very Caribbean uh, narrative that was, like, directing her movement uh, that wasn't being translated. And then listening um, to an interview later, the choreographer was using... Caribbean influenced dance movements too because that's what she was comfortable doing and they were like instead of giving her things she couldn't do why not give her things that um, she's used to doing from growing up in the Caribbean and also I was watching it with my friends of different races some were African-American some were white and um, they all reacted to it differently so some were appalled some were really impressed at her moves um, and was trying to learn them too, like, how does she do that? And how does she do this? And the other one was like, oh my God, that's disgusting. Why would she do that? And the performance, she was like patting her cake, which is her vagina, which kind of reminded me of the Pat and Crank, which you'll see is a dance hall movement. There was a culture clash happening, but nobody was really paying attention to it because they're just caught up in their own interpretation of what's happening, their own kind of uh, oh, it must be vulgar because she's doing this. And, and my association with that movement is this, so this is what it means. So um, I just wanted to point out the multiple things that were actually happening in that moment so that we could um, have a more nuanced kind of understanding of of what Rihanna is actually performing. I'm, I was born in Trinidad and um, grew up partly in Trinidad and grew up partly in New Jersey, so I always remember having to translate myself or having to mute my Trininess in when I'm in the American public space and uh, mute my Americanness when I'm in my Trinidadian space. So this seemed a moment where both kind of was happening at the same time for me where I was getting it like, oh yeah, you know, that's what we do. We dance like that. And it, it's about female empowerment and, and like kind of taking ownership of your own erotic power. But remembering that people who are looking do not grow up with 
whining or circulating the hips, dancing, shaking your butt uh, in family or protected spaces. So they see it as like being vulnerable and, you know, presenting yourself, um, putting yourself out there for potential violence and more violence. And <laughs> to boot at that time, um, that particular song was kind of uh, uh, like a trailing into her reconnection with Chris Brown, who, you know, had the kind of the domestic violence um, incident against her that went viral and, you know, was not only painful for her and him and for us to witness. Um, she did a version of that song with Chris Brown um, as a, one of the remixes. And um, so when she performed Birthday Cake, all of that kind of was like in the air um, and it was a lot to decipher. So I was like, okay, I need to write about this, try to figure it out, or, you know, at least ask questions so we can have a conversation about it. So tell us, like, how this dance relates to things done in dance halls in, in the Caribbean. Okay, so it, I, to be clear, dance hall is really associated with Jamaica, and it's a Jamaican um, dance culture. Um, but it travels throughout the rest of the Caribbean through the music. I don't know if you know any Jamaican dancehall uh, artists, but usually like um, Elephant Man or um, Mr. Vegas or um, Vibe Cartel, the dancers in the dance hall in Jamaica will make up a dance, and then if it's really good, the DJs start to sing about it, and then they sing about it to the point where other people can learn what those dance movements are. So Rihanna's access to um, dancehall movements through the music. She grew up in Barbados, okay? And in Barbados, they have a celebration called Crop Over. And traditionally, it was a celebration about the harvesting of the crops. So it was a long, it was a long period of where there's dancing and singing, and, and every time they harvest the crops, there's music and dancing and singing in the streets um, to kind of praise the crops that are, you know, that are being picked, and then also <clears throat> for the future to have more fruitful crops to come. In the modern context, it kind of has been boiled into a, a packaged version um, where you're dancing in the streets. And the main day of crop over is called Kudumin. So during that time, people tend to wear costumes, and it has become very similar to the one that is practiced in Trinidad. People wear costumes, and they um, dance through the streets, and they, there's a point where you get judged based on your costumes and your dancing and, and your organization and the size of your band and then um, the, the glamour of the costume and so on and so forth. So um, she grew up in that culture where whining in public, whining in the streets, and if I haven't said before, whining is a, a rolling hip dance where you roll your hips in a circle in general, and then depending where you're from, it'll, it'll change, it'll look different. So, for example, people from Barbados tend to fling their butts more, um, and they call that walking up. People from uh, Jamaica tend to have a more, um, what we call jukin, which would be like a, a thrusting kind of uh, wine. Their whining is a little bit more thrusting. People from uh, Trinidad, it tends to be more circular and um, under yourself. But you can kind of tell where people come from depending on how they whine. Rihanna is has become very important in the Crop Over Festival, it seems like. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of videos of her at Crop Over. So, um, yeah, so like I said, she grew up in that culture, and she has been doing it since she was a kid, wearing the costume and going through the streets and dancing. And when she became famous, she made it a point to constantly go back to crop over 
and participate in her um, in her culture. It felt like her one way to like you know maintain a part of herself and not lose herself. When she uh, got her um, uh, Michael Jackson Vanguard Award from the VMAs, the MTV VMAs, she was stating that how um, she makes sure, makes it a point to remember that she represents Barbados and the Caribbean at large, which is why she constantly goes back to crop over and she videotapes it with no shame. Um, not trying to feel bad, not trying to sh put shame onto the culture or change the culture, um, presenting what the costumes are. Sometimes they're just a bikini. Sometimes it's a full, depending how much money you have, really. The more money you have, the more covered you are in, in carnival, to be honest. <laughs> the less money you have, you'll probably just be like, okay, all I can afford is a bra, a bikini bottom, some cute boots and feathers, and that's my costume. The, vid the news sources tend to say, oh, she's scantily clad, or she's being really vulgar, she's being really um, overly sexual, but in the space of, the, of crop over, that's considered normal, and that's not considered um, being sexual. In fact, a lot of her dancing is tame compared to what other, like what other crop over um, masqueraders do and perform. So, so yeah, so crop over is really big, um, and it's one way that she maintains her Caribbeanness and presents it to the world unapologetically. So this issue, I want to get uh, poke at this issue of sort of vulgarity and shame that you mentioned, because this comes up in your work and also in, in the work of some of our other guests uh, today, who I'm going to introduce now. Anika LeBennett is an associate professor of Africana Studies at Cornell University, where she is also a member of the field in the Department of Anthropology and of the Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Program. She's also affiliated with the Latino and American Studies Programs, and she's the author of She's Mad Real, Popular Culture and West Indian Girls in Brooklyn, released in 2011 by New York University Press. Welcome, Anika. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm also going to introduce our, our final guest today, uh, Treva Lindsay. Treva is an Associate Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University. She is currently Research on Women and Girls of Color Fellow at the W.E.B. Du Bois Research Institute at Harvard, where she's working on a project titled Hear Our Screams, A Contemporary History of State and State-Sanctioned Violence Against Black Women and Girls. She has published widely on black feminist theory, women's history, and popular culture in academic journals, as well as in publications like Cosmopolitan and the Huffington Post. Her first book, Colored No More, New Negro Womanhood in the Nation's Capital, is due out from the University of Illinois Press in 2017. Welcome, Treva. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'd love to, this is Onika, I'd love to jump in and ha add a little bit to the great contextualization that Adana has given us here uh, and in her article. Uh, I really appreciated that she mentioned the ways in which Rihanna <clears throat> is engaging with culture that is distinct to Barbados, but then also dance hall and Jamaica and broader Caribbean cultural traditions. When I listen to Birthday Cake and I watch that SNL performance that Adana analyzes for us so beautifully in the article, I think about the sound of the school bell at the start and the hand claps throughout that Adana so correctly focuses us on. That school bell and those hand claps for me also situate her performance within the cultural space of childhood, Rihanna's mm. performance within the broader cultural space of childhood. So the birthday cake, the blowing out of candles are annual rituals that begin in childhood. And I want to suggest that something more culturally specific is going on and that's signified in her whining body and in the use of the word birthday cake to mean vagina. 
those signifiers, the whining body and the cake uh, reference, the cake for referencing her vagina, position her as not exclusively a daughter of Barbados, but as a borderless daughter of the broader Caribbean. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. We know that Rihanna's mother, Monica Braithwaite, is actually Guyanese, was born in Guyana. And when Rihanna talks about her family, she talks about that Guyanese ancestry quite frequently. I believe that the use of cake here can be linked to the Guyanese slang term for vagina, which is pata cake. So pata mm -hmm. cake is the term that Guyanese mothers use when teaching girl children about their bodies. When you're a little girl, that's the kind of kid term that your mother will use with you rather than saying vagina. If we consider the Guyanese teaching a young daughter to call her vagina her pata cake, and the hand clapping um, and cake patting in the song, as derivatives from that British nursery rhyme that we probably all know, pate cake, pate cake, baker's man, from which I think the Guyanese slang is derived, we can see Rihanna's usage of birthday cake as a marker of her Guyanese ancestry and as an indicator of the global intertextuality of the song that I think is kind of circum-Caribbean, that is Anglophone Caribbean. Um, and, and then if I could take it a little further, so that nursery rhyme that's also a, a little girl's hand clapping, pat a cake, pat a cake, baker's man, bake me a cake as fast as you can, pat it and shape it and mark it with B. In the song, when Rihanna is telling the male listener to um, put his name on it, put your name on it, she's mm -hmm. asking him to pat it and shape it and mark it with his name, right? What Rihanna is doing is sexualizing a ritual whose origins begin in the Guyanese maternal transfer of experiential knowledge, um, but it's an act of defiance. She's turning that into something else, something that is sexually uh, defiant and resistant. So what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of circum-Caribbean um, context that's being played out in the performance and in the lyrics of the song. And if we pay attention to that, we can think about um, how Rihanna's identity as Bajan, as the daughter of a Guyanese, as part of the Anglophone Caribbean, and then as this global superstar, is engaging with all kinds of different contexts and meanings. And also, it, it's to, to add to that, um, the fact that she states the desire of the observer as she's patting her cake, she goes, but you want to put your name on it? Kind of stating and stating her power that she's the gate, she's the gatekeeper. Like whether you put your name on it or not, whether you shape it, whether you mm -hmm. have access to this or not, has to you have to go through me, right? In in her dancing also, now, and that was some wonderful points that you brought up. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think you know, one of the things that has interested me about about this performance as a as a musicologist is the way in which the sounds change between the different versions of the song, and that school bell isn't in all of the versions, which is mm. kind of intriguing. Mm -hmm. Some of them just start with the sort of uh, uh, the electronic sound that sort of descends. It's hard to describe. It's before the before the uh, humming starts. And I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. It sounds. It's. It sounds more electronic overall, and it's uh, a little bit more disembodied, I think, or something. Uh, it sounds less human. Yeah, and Rihanna does humming in in a number of her songs. I read the humming before the. I think the version that I heard there was she's humming before the actual school bell, and I even read the humming of what a mother would do to an infant. You know, kind of humming to comfort. Oh, interesting. As part of that patty cake song. Um, so for me, the song really is situated in girlhood and is in kind of defiance of girlhood lessons or um, kind of repositioning those girlhood lessons in, in you know, sexually explicit ways. And it, it, to me, is really interesting. Uh, when you, once you sort of codify something on film, it, it 
sort mm-hmm. of the the context is less controllable. Can you can you talk a little bit about about what about that? Um, especially with you know social media and YouTube being able to be embedded in other um, other parts of cyberspace, it makes it extremely uncontrollable on who sees it and what they think about it and how they're going to frame it once they post it or repost it or you know email it or so on and so forth. Um, or you know if they watch the video to learn how they then use it becomes decontextualized because they don't have access to what's informing Rihanna's dancing. They just see what she does and then they imitate it in a way that they imagine how it should be used. That kind of uncontrollability becomes really hard to theorize or or rather process, I think, in terms of like the potential of what is going to happen or how people read it. Um, in looking at the comments, for example, for uh, not only just that video, but the videos that are then um, suggested by YouTube as to re- in relation to that video. So um, I don't know what the, the math that they use to figure out which video to suggest, but for me, they at some point definitely suggested, oh, look at this TMZ video of, you know, Rihanna and her tumultuous relationship with Chris Brown, and oh, look at her also being um, sexual in in this video and look at her doing some dance hall movements in this London clip uh, on this talk show. So you can kind of create your own storyline that kind of recontextualizes the dance. So at that point it becomes, you know, um, based on what what it is you want to see as as the viewer, as somebody who's watching uh, a very controllable space. Like, what do you want to see? Do you want to see Rihanna? You know, in an empowered space, do you want to see her in a vulnerable space? Do you want to see a mix of the both? You can actually create your own storyline. Um, so, yeah, it becomes very complicated uh, in terms of <laughs> who's doing and where it ends up and, um, you know, why they're even watching, what brought them there to begin with, you know, what video brought them to that particular um, SNL clip that's going to totally shift how they understand the clip. I, I would add in that, too, because... Um, because Rihanna is mining so many different spaces, like we said here, the Circum-Caribbean, um, Barbados, Guyana, in many ways, strip clubs in the South, um, mm-hmm. there are various ways that she's speaking to a lot of different black audiences mm-hmm. um, in one kind of cultural text. And in these different mediums, these cultural texts come off the page, come off the screen, come off the phone, come off the iPad in different kinds of ways. and in the U.S. in particular, we're accustomed to looking at images of black women's sexualized bodies through this long and glorious history of this hypersexual, exploited black female body. So it becomes very difficult, I think, in the United States for us to imagine a pleasure politic, and I use this in citing the work of Joan Morgan here, mm-hmm. a pleasure politic that clearly centers black women's sexual autonomy, that thinks about sexuality very differently, that doesn't necessarily think of a gyrating body, a twerking body, a whining body, a lusting body as a body that is immediately accessible for sex or a body to be exploited, but actually a body that's about empowerment, that's about you can come and put your name on it, maybe, right? There's a question right. mark there, right? Or can you really handle this? Can you really articulate this? And in doing so, she's also giving us a narrative of consent 
that is a very intriguing way of thinking about this. Who's in control? Who's authorial in this? And I think it's very hard in a U.S.-based context when we talk about a U.S.-centered gaze onto this body that's moving through the Circum Caribbean and also moving through the U.S. to think about black women's bodies outside of the lens and the conversation of exploitation and dehumanization to actually imagine autonomy, pleasure, desirability, and not this just kind of ambivalent desire of fear of commodification that often is attached to black bodies in the United States specifically, which doesn't negate the histories that exist in the Circum Caribbean around black female bodies as well, but there's certainly different ways that public space and black female bodies can do traffic in the Circum Caribbean that don't necessarily have an equivalent fully in the United States. That I think that was Treva. Um, that, yes. Those are wonderful points, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought them up. I think that one of the things Adana's article does so nicely is she gestures to those tensions, right, between, um, and, and, and her use of the term schizophrenic, I think, does this, the, the, the tensions between reading um, Rihanna's movements um, from her own perspective, who's Trinidadian, uh, reading them as somebody who's looking at this on YouTube, uh, stationed in the global north, reading them um, in terms of how they might be viewed in the space uh, in, in, of Carnival and, and Barbados. There are all of these different spaces in which Rihanna is being consumed. And, and I, I want to say that the ways in which that black woman's body is read that, you know, Treva just uh, described for us so wonderfully, I think there, there are tensions there that are going on in Barbados too. So, you know, in, in the edited volume that Heather Russell and, and Hillary, Hillary McDee Beckles just um, published last year, Rihanna, Barbados World Girl in, the, in Global Popular Culture, they look at how Rihanna is read by her multiple audiences, right, as this sort of transnational icon who is at once, you know, positioned in terms of national belonging in Barbados, um, but also consumed and read globally. And, and that the tensions that Treva pointed to just now, some of those tensions come out in Barbados itself because, you know, when I look at the title of Adana's article, Can Rihanna Have Her Cake and Eat It Too? Um, it's, the, the question is not just for Rihanna, obviously, it's for all of us uh, watching the performance, but it's also for the Barbados nation state. Um, in that edited volume, Rihanna, Barbados World Girl. Uh, there's a wonderful chapter by um, Esther Jones, and Esther Jones says that it would seem that the, the Bajan um, nation state uh, wants to both com commodify Rihanna, that is sell her in terms of positioning her body in tourism ads, but at the same time wants to try to control her sexuality and market that in terms of respectability. So I was struck by the fact that the Bajan nation state also wants to have its cake and eat it too, right? Also wants Rihanna to be a marker of tourism and used to bring tourism to Barbados, but at the same time wants her to do that respectfully, whatever that could mean for them, right, in terms of sort of respectability politics. Completely. In fact, that is, a, you could say that throughout all the Caribbean, all the islands are battling with that because one of the big money makers is people from other countries who have lots of money coming to our country and enjoying the sun and the sand and the people and the food and all the things that are embodied labor that then kind of puts us in a situation where we have to actively be nice to strangers as a practice so that they can come back and spend more money. In fact, 
when I went to Barbados to do research on crop over, they had signs everywhere. It was like, uh, it doesn't hurt to be nice. Be nice to tourists. Um, treat them, you know, as if you treat your family member. Um, all, all of this kind of um, continually reminder that, hey, you know, if you entice them, if you make them happy, they're going to come back and they're going to spend money and that's good for you because it's good for the nation. And everything you do, smiling, dancing, eating with them, all, everything you do in your everyday life is going to impact, you know, how these people take in, you know, Barbadian culture. And um, in terms of whining, in terms of the dancing, there's completely even um, – Con, you know, considered respectable walk-up or a dutty walk-up or, you know, um, a crass or vulgar walk-up by the Bayesian people themselves. After crop-over, after kudumin, they have, like clockwork, it's called walk of shame, W-U-K. I like a play on the word walk-up. Walk of shame. And they'll have pictures of um, people walking up on the streets to the point where they think it's vulgar. So they're shaming them. So they have a picture of, like, maybe the girl is too young and she's, like, you know, hands on the floor and she's whining or something. Or uh, somebody who's a school teacher, you know, whining up with a, with a young gentleman. Or, um, you know, when you get excited, maybe you, you take your, some article of clothing off or something and you throw it in the air. And some, so they have a picture of that on there. And they're like, you know, women should know better. Mothers should know better. Uh, grandmothers should know better. Like, if you're too old and, and they think you're if they think you're too old and you're whining in the streets they'll put your picture in there with a little comment on it so they definitely participate in like trying to figure out you know how to make it fun how to make people enjoy themselves how, how to let go but then remembering that crop over is not uh something that is just for Bayesians. like people who show up there come from all parts of the world, and we want them to come back. So we don't want to scare them. We don't also don't want to embarrass ourselves, or we don't want to have to explain to them and say, oh, you know, um, it, it doesn't mean this, it really means this, or, you know, so they try to, you know, use shame, like public shame through the newspaper to kind of train people as to say, okay, this kind of walking up is okay, this kind of walking up is real bad. So we're going to try again next year. And every year there's always like the walk of shame and they always have, you know, the list of pictures of people who they feel like cross the line as to that now you're not doing respectable whining because it's always going to be interpreted not just by your own people, but like people who have no idea what the culture is about. So where do these standards of respectability come from? Are they really kind of driven by other countries' standards or are they, is there something kind of inherent that's there as well? Completely colonial, colonial um, that, that's from the colonial encounter. Um, unlike America, uh, lots of these, the oldest, I think, was 50, we're 50 years old, like independent nations. <laughs> so most of us have been colonies for majority of our nationhood at this point. Part of the transition process of going from being a, a colony to uh, independent nation was proving for example, Trinidad had to prove to Britain that they were worthy of taking care of themselves. And part of that was um, showing that they could control their women, not to go too much into history, but there was a class in Trinidad called the Jamet class, and the Jamet class were seen as like vulgar prostitutes, like pretty much women who did things that respectable women didn't do. Um, and they were a big, big, huge part of the... Um, the Trinidadian Carnival during the late 1800s and the early 1900s. 
And during that time, they passed many laws to stop them from dancing in the streets, from uh, cross-dressing, from putting on vulgar costumes or, you know, things that accentuated their butts or, or making fun of, of elite um, lawmakers, so on and so forth. And go the government was actively trying to suppress that culture by um, saying that women should be in the house that respectable women do this, um, having a list of rules every year coming out as to, you know, respectable people dance and perform like this. And it became part of the um, the culture as more and more ex-slaves and, 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 and black Creoles got jobs in more respectable positions, whether working for oil companies or working for lawmakers. So as people were moving from being low work, you know, to having no money, to having uh, more respectable jobs, then their behaviors also began to change and they kind of started to um, embody and integrate these um, very colonial ideas of what it means to be respectable. And, and it completely shifted. It shifted how carnival was performed, it shifted how people understood uh, overall social goals. So uh, in Trinidad, like, uh, education is highly respected and, and um, pushing a, an agenda to get a good job so that you can raise a family, so that you could have a, um, you know, a respectable kind of uh, reputation throughout the nation is something that's very much pushed and, and as it should be. But in terms of what Jamets, they're whining and they're dancing in the streets, that performance that now has just been relegated to um, Carnival, that was highly, highly policed during that time. And it was of especially when it came to women, they were very much um, shamed into not doing it anymore to the point where uh, participating in carnival for women for uh, uh, some period of time, like my mother's generation, my grandparents' generation, was seen as a taboo. Um, and now things mm -hmm. have shifted uh, for multiple reasons, especially to do with women getting more jobs in respectable, in high, high, higher paying jobs, but also um, being able to afford uh, to enter carnival and being able to make laws and, and enter these spaces that men usually were in. So now it has shifted back. More women are performing in carnival than it did back in the day. But there's always this battle in terms of, you know, performing respectability, especially in these kinds of spaces that is chaotic and looks vulgar and looks uncontrollable, um, but is necessary in terms of um, finding pleasure in a public space space and, and owning that space and claiming your pleasure in that space and saying, I deserve to be in this space and have pleasure in this space, right? So it's, it's automatically calling for this kind of battle between, um, you know, what's good and what's bad, what's respectable, what's disrespectful, and so on and so forth. There's an investment here, I think, in what the flip of this is, is disrespectability politics, which mm -hmm. is a term coined um, by Brittany Cooper um, that really brings in this idea of a commitment to this kind of radical <laughs> other right this this disruption of space this in hip-hop we say bring in wreck um, from Gwendolyn Q but we think about this in terms of if we thought about it in a USA context a kind of ratchet politics or um, a zero F to give a disposition that I think Rihanna, if you look at her Snapchat, her social media, right, the various ways that we can read um, Rihanna's performances across all of these different mediums, and it's really important to think about her as an artist moving across these different spaces, right, geographically, technologically, that's really important. And across this, there's a clear kind of uh, commitment to this disposition of having zero F, right, of being 
disrespectable, but in different ways still pulling on these um, histories of respectability politics, having certain ways to police gender performance, police racial performances, and specifically police black women's performances in public spaces as well as private spaces, what you should and should not do, what you ought and ought not do. And there's something that moves throughout the African diaspora, right? We think about it in terms of colonialism, in particular in the Caribbean and the particular legacies of slavery, and then the United States, the legacy of slavery specifically, and moving out of and into Jim Crow, this investment in a respectability politics that was supposed to get us collectively somewhere different. That if only we performed in these ways in public spaces, will we be granted certain notions of equality, uh, freedom, and justice. I think with this generation across the board, across the African diaspora, we're seeing, and you've seen this across history at different moments too, a divestment from that politics, a, 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 a direct kind of disbelief and an antagonism towards those politics that says we're not any freer, right? We're not able to do the things that we're choosing to do, and we're still facing similar battles as black women, black girls moving through the world, that respectability has not saved us. And so if it's a survival politics that we're talking about, what we then see in a performative politics is something else, something creative, something distasteful, but it's purposefully so. It is intent on being in juxtaposition to the regulations and policing of black bodies in public spaces. And I think having someone like Rihanna who challenges that across these different diasporic spaces is so incredibly important for reimagining politics of public space through black women's bodies. Absolutely, absolutely, Treva. And, and I was, this is, what you've just said is exactly why I was so delighted when Rihanna received the um, MTV Vanguard Award and in her acceptance speech, not only gave the shout out to Barbados, but also the Caribbean and then black women. She said, you know, I'm acknowledging Barbados from, I'm acknowledging the Caribbean and black women. Um, that reminded me of a quote from um, Heather Russell's essay in the Rihanna edited volume, and if I can channel Heather a little bit. So Heather writes, Heather Russell writes, Rihanna and by inference her fellow Bajan and black diaspora sisters are simultaneously entrapped and empowered actors, queerly and deftly navigating across national, transnational spaces of possibility, transformation, and power, which historically and contemporarily seek to script and conscript their sexual mobility. So Rihanna is in dialogue with, in cahoots with um, black women throughout the diaspora who are constantly pushing back on those um, Victorian uh, era notions of proper femininity that are s still so salient in Barbados, that are still pushing back against the way uh, black women's bodies are still policed um, throughout the US, Europe, all over the globe. Um, so what, what Treva's saying is really important. I think that Rihanna is doing some um, critical work here is intervening in really critically important ways. Yeah, I totally, completely agree and so thankful that you guys brought it up because I, I think what's great about Rihanna is that she's public, like she's a public figure of what a lot of Caribbean women do in their everyday dancing and, and everyday life in general, but like I, I look, I'm looking at the dancing body during carnival and her going up in these spaces where a black female dancing body is 
prone to being shamed or naturalized as being shamed or naturalized as being, you know, negative and disgusting and hypersexual and there for the purposes other than her own desire. Her doing that in this very public space, you know, is what, as I, as I see it, like Bayesian folks, Bayesian women when they're winding up, walking up on the streets of Cropover or Trinidadian women when they're winding down the streets of Carnival or, you know, the Jamaican Carnival or in, um, Grenada for, you know, um, their carnival, they're walking up, getting on bad, knowing that, hey, they might have a picture of them taken, you know, to shame them, but it, it's not going to stop them. It's not going to stop them from creating community with each other. It's not going to stop them from teaching other women that, hey, you should love your body and you shouldn't be afraid to put it out there in the street and claim your pleasure for yourself without any shame. And it's a big fight and a big pushback. And yeah, totally right. And that's something, you know, this active disrespectability is something that needs to happen on all fronts. So thankfully, she's up there in the biggest of the biggest spotlights and the biggest of the biggest stage as these women are, you know, on, on the streets uh, throughout the Caribbean, but also in New York, uh, you know, Miami, Atlanta, uh, Notting Hill Carnival, the LA yeah. Carnival, Hollywood Carnival, like wherever there's a, a Caribbean festival and women are actively taking up these public spaces and getting on that for the sake of their culture, but also for the sake of their own design, their own pleasure. My sincere thanks to our guests for this episode. Adana Jones, lecturer in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies and the Division of Dance at Stanford University. You can find her article at www.oxfordhandbooks.com and we'll put a direct link on the OUP blog. Onika LeBennett, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Cornell University and author of She's Mad Real, Popular Culture and West Indian Girls in Brooklyn, published by New York University Press. She is organizing a two-day symposium at Cornell University in April called On Black Women by Black Girls. And Treva Lindsay, Associate Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University, currently a fellow for research on women and girls of color at the W.E.B. Du Bois Research Institute at Harvard, and author of Colored No More, New Negro Womanhood in the Nation's Capital, due out from University of Illinois Press next year. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of the Oxford Comment on SoundCloud, iTunes, and, as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends. <laughs>